Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It is still October. It feels like it's six months. October 16th, 2023. The first moving into the second day of Cheshvan, 5784. Uh, it's been a crazy week. I am here now with Jonathan Spire, who is so many things. He is a British-Israeli analyst, writer, journalist of Middle Eastern affairs, director of research at the Middle East Forum, editor of the Middle East Quarterly Magazine, a fellow with the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security, a freelance security analyst and correspondent for Jane's Information Group and a columnist for the Jerusalem Post, and that's just the short list. I've had him on before. As you all know, his insights are brilliant, and I felt you deserved nothing less. He's very busy, so we're going to have a few minutes here. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Hi, Eve, and thanks for inviting me. Um, so in terms of what we were also, you and I, discussing a moment ago and what seems important to me to begin with and focus on, um, it, it seems to me that in the first days following the uh, murderous attack of October 7th, a very kind of sterile debate took place in the global media in which, you know, including some very major publications in the English-speaking world, in which uh, it was argued about whether Iran or how much Iran knew, to what extent was Iran directing this, to what extent did Iran order this. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I found that debate to be extremely sterile, other than apart from the fact, of course, that nobody really knew and everybody was speculating, is because it doesn't really matter. And the reason why it doesn't really matter is because, like so much in our world today, the open source stuff is actually much more telling than the supposedly uh, secret stuff. It is openly available and uh, and uh, locatable, that the Hamas military capacity is the product of its relationship with the Islamic Republic of Iran. That is to say that Hamas's weaponry, mm-hmm. up to and including the Fajr 5s and the M302 missiles, but including and taking in also the drones that we used in the first minutes attack on October 7th, and of course the paraglider capacity and the tactical abilities that were on display, uh, nobody denies, and of course the money that would have been required right. to put together an operation this kind, nobody denies and really can seriously deny that all of that is the result of the relationship between Hamas and Islamic Republic of Iran. So it's an entirely uh, sterile and misdirected and maybe even deliberately misdirected debate to say, yeah, we want to know exactly what Iran knew and when. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. This is an Iranian production because it's unimaginable without Iran. What you saw and what we saw on October 7th is the uh, meeting of two relatable phenomena from above the Iranian state capacity and resources in terms of weaponry, in terms of money, in terms of training, and from below the uh, Islamic or Islamist uh, fervor of, in this case, Hamas uh, movement, and the meeting of those two, the will from below of you know, very large numbers of young men still, and young women maybe too, in the Arabic-speaking world, to take up arms uh, on behalf of jihad and the destruction of Israel and the opposition to the West, and then the Iranian capacity from above meeting the two. That's what we witnessed. So it's very important to be clear on that and not to be, I think, diverted by this uh, rather sterile debate which we witnessed in the first And and the fact that Iran is Shia and Hamas is Sunni irrelevant to this? Look, there's a track, Iran has a track record now of making use also of Sunni movements. Hamas is one. Palestinian Islamic Jihad is another. But we also know uh, that uh, Al-Qaeda members have been given, uh, very senior Al-Qaeda members, such as the well-known figure Mr. Saif al-Adil and others, have been given refuge by the Iranians. So Iran is absolutely capable of and and very willing to work with Sunni 
uh, Islamists when it makes sense uh, to do so. So yeah, look, I'll be I'll be the last one to say that the Shia Sunni divide is not a significant thing that should be studied and should be observed. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to practical cooperation, particularly against Western and Jewish. Uh, targets, right. then there's a track record of cooperation. This is firstly the other thing to bear in mind in terms of the specifically Palestinian context is that Iran's very major investment in Hamas and and, and alongside that in Islamic Jihad uh, is uh, the result, in a way, the product of the Shia legitimacy deficit in the Sunni Arab world because Iran understands it may have such a deficit mm-hmm. because it's seen as outside of non Arab, non Sunni. So it tries precisely by involving itself in the Israeli-Palestinian context to make up for that gap, to try to demonstrate that, yeah, well, we're the ones that actually can hit the Jews, we're the ones that can actually hurt them. So even if we're Shia, you should support us because we're the ones helping in the cause that all Muslims Mm. supposedly are so interested in, which is the Palestinian cause and the destruction of Israel. So the Shia creds are rising with all of this, the credibility of them. Interesting. Yeah, I think so. I think so, and I think it's a really important thing to bear. When we say the credits are rising, the question is, you know, among who? Because, right. you know, one of the reasons I think why we collectively sort of, uh, you know, fell asleep on guard, so to speak, on October 7th is because over the last three or four years, we've been so busy, uh, or we've been told we should be so busy, and many of us have been so busy, with the notion of, an, of a certain kind of a new Middle East arriving from the Abraham Accords, which said, well, there's something very new happening now. The old enmities are being buried. Iran and its enemies, friends are still out there, our enemies. But we've also got these new friends now, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain. Saudi Arabia is coming. Arabia right? very soon. Mm-hmm. And all that's, of course, true and it's valuable as far as it goes. But it should never have been able to uh, have been allowed to divert us from the fact that among the masses of people in the non-rich and highly populated parts of the Arab world, i.e. not the sparsely populated, resource-rich monarchies of the Gulf, but the teeming, highly populated Arab countries, not of North Africa, but of where we're around, the Levant and Iraq, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Jordan mm-hmm. Palestinian territory, and including Egypt as well, the, the, the support on the ground of the masses of people is and has remained for political Islam. Political Islam still has no uh, real rivals at street level, at ground level. So in those terms, among the masses of people, yes, I'm sure that uh, Hamas certainly, you know, will have gained a great deal of credit. At the end of the day, it's not that everybody on the Arab street, so-called, supports political Islam, but it is that the most organized people and the most militant people do. It remains without real competition at ground level in the populated parts of the Arab world. Can you define political Islam for all of us? Well, sure. I mean, the, the, you know, the desire to uh, to see a return to Islamic to governance based on Islamic Sharia law mm-hmm. uh, and in the name of Islam. You know, uh, this is very, very serum. And there are many, many sub denominations in that. But this is the basic uh, the basic uh, idea. You know, mm-hmm. so that that idea is remains dominant uh, on the Arab street level. That's to say, I mentioned this because when we talk about Abraham Accords, the UAE, the Saudis. Yeah, they at least the Emiratis talk about this a lot are trying to promote a different kind of Arab identity, a different way for younger Arabs to engage with modernity in the West, the modern world, is true. They are. Does it have massive purchase yet in the populated parts of the Arab world? No, it does not. And certainly not when it comes to real political organization and military organization, which ends up being the real language of power, unfortunately, in the Arabic-speaking world. In those contexts, political Islam, Islamism, 
uh, still has no real rival. And uh, Hamas is nothing more or less than simply the local variant of that uh, outlook. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised by what you know of the Arab world about the said the extreme violence? Like there isn't even a word for it of what happened on October 7th. No, I wasn't remotely surprised because I covered Iraq and Syria and Lebanon uh, for my pains for the best part of the last two decades. And none of this was uh, out of the ordinary. The only thing which I was uh, very much surprised by, and I think as surprised as everybody else, and I don't claim some sort of, you know, uh, not, uh, peerless prescience or not at all. I was absolutely surprised that it came out of Gaza. I wasn't expecting it to come from Gaza. Uh, Where did you I'm think it would not, come from? Lebanon? I thought, come, I thought it would come from the north, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, uh, and, it, and it still might, of course. It is right. most consequential for Not mutually but, exclusive, uh, right. Yeah, not at all. But I didn't think it would begin in Gaza. I'm not among those analysts who uh, had become complacent about Gaza. And I was involved with the Middle East Forum, one of the think tanks I'm associated with, with research projects in the months preceding this, which were calling for the disarmament of Gaza, which was saying to the Israeli establishment, don't be complacent about Gaza, don't think it's all done. There's still an enemy down there. We should still be looking at how to act effectively against that enemy to disarm that enemy and render him harmless. But, you know, having said all that, you know, I certainly wasn't somebody who was expecting the uh, attack to come out of Gaza. Many of us were expecting an attack. I'd say many of us in the the community of, uh, you know, of people dealing with this stuff were looking with real concern and talking about this in the months, in the past months, about the way in which Israeli society was so divided and the way in which that was being understood. You know, without getting in any way into who was right, right or wrong, wrong right, the right. The way it was being, those disunity was being seen in the Arabic-speaking world was as as massive as as growing weakness, and weakness is generally interpreted as an invitation to attack uh, when you have enemies in this part of the world. So many of us were deeply concerned at the possibility of violence, uh, but we, or at least I, certainly did not specify Gaza as the place it would come out of, and I was surprised as anybody. I was as surprised as anybody else frankly, by the capacities which Hamas showed and its uh, abilities, tactical abilities, which I did not expect in terms of use of paragliders, use very smart right. use of drones, use of snipers, and so on and so forth. But in terms of the barbaric uh, cruelty that was on display on October mm-hmm. 7th and subsequently, uh, no, I wasn't surprised at all because anybody who knows the Syrian battlefield or anybody who covered the war against ISIS and the emergence of ISIS uh, anybody who knows Syria and Iraq to any degree of depth uh, would have been witness to similar displays. You know, in a way, what I was struck by was not the uniqueness, but rather the the, uh, the similarities. When I saw the pictures of those uh, kids at the Supernova uh, Music uh, Festival in Beirim, you know, right. running across that stubble field, you know, being pursued, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being pursued by the jihadi uh, gunmen. You know, I was 10 kilometers from Sinjar Mountain in the summer of uh, 2014 when Daesh, when ISIS, was carrying out its attempted genocide against the Yazidi people. And, you know, the the, size, the first thought in my mind was, right, that looks like Sinjar. That looks like exactly what was happening on the plains and mountains and, and hills in northern Syria uh, in the summer of 2014. So, no, it was, uh, I'm afraid, and sorry to say, it was the very opposite of unfamiliar from that point of view. Well. Um, do you think it shocked the world, though? You think Hamas overplayed it here in that sense, or the world will get over it in a few days and start coming well, after Israel for the poor Gazans? Unfortunately, I think that process is already happening. Yeah. I mean, like many, like many people engaged in this field uh, here in Israel, I've been, you know, doing and I'm still doing a huge amount of uh, of media interviews uh, and uh, media uh, briefings and so on 
and writing uh, in recent days and also seeking to consume media and get a sense of who's saying what. And we're already seeing, it's over the last 48 hours, basically, I mean, the uh, 48 to 72 hours, you know, the initial shock and sympathy, I would say, lasted about three days, right. uh, three or four days. And, and now we're already into, uh, you know, the humanitarian tragedy and crisis of Gaza and Israeli responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's all a little bit hard to, uh, or annoying to, to take because even though we, I guess we should be used to it by now, because if I can once again, you know, draw a, a parallel analogy to other parts of our region where parallel and similar situations have taken place, what Israel is doing, has been doing regarding Gaza over the last few days is, is exactly parallel to what the United States coalition did to the area that had fallen under the control of the Islamic State uh, in the campaign against Islamic State, you know, in 2016, 17, 18, and finishing in. 19. That's to say the people of Islamic State hadn't uh, voted for ISIS. They didn't want ISIS. They just happened to be living where ISIS took over. But the bombing campaign of the Americans and British and the others uh, cost an enormous toll uh, mm-hmm. in uh, human life. And in fact, they did not take the kind of precautions uh, which Israel, which is Israeli air power, as a matter of course, does. And yet there were no demonstrations outside by, you know, by British and Americans themselves, you know, outside of British or American government buildings uh, in defense of the entirely blameless, by the way, residents of the Islamic State. Most of them had never voted for, for IS. They were just stuck where ISIS took over. Mm-hmm. Those lives, uh, and there were thousands of lives lost in Western uh, air power to destroy ISIS, have simply gone down the memory hole. There was never, we don't even know how many, because nobody's ever really gone in there to try to count. That's how much those lives apparently didn't matter. Now, I support the Western campaign against ISIS, and I'm glad that the Islamic State was destroyed. Uh, it, w- it was a, a criminal and genocidal organization. But Israel is fighting against something not dissimilar right. in a not dissimilar way, and yet with a completely different uh, international uh, Double response. standard. Uh, the double, double standard, standard. Is, is, is we know about, and, it, and mm-hmm. it's rarely been so glaring and obvious as it as it you, currently is. You mean like the Red Cross not dealing with our hostages, you know, and just worrying about the people in Gaza? Well, absolutely. You know, and, and absolutely. And the notion that, you know, a call is not going up right. for Hamas to, as if it wants the bombing to stop, if it wants the justified military action to stop, to simply release the hostages as, as, a, as a preliminary. That's not even there. Western politicians even aren't, aren't saying it. But, you know, I think we also have to give... Uh, Credit where credit and indeed assign blame uh, where it's due. At the end of the day, you know, if you look at the crowds in the European cities that are, you know, that are passing through those cities with fury and anger and sometimes attacking Jews and attacking passersby. Yeah, let's be clear. I mean, for the most part, these are not uh, local people. These are people who are either themselves or the descendants of Middle Eastern and South Asian Muslim immigrants. So let's let's call let's let's call the thing by its name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you, you don't have that kind of demonstrations taking place. I don't know in uh, in Warsaw or in Prague, right. and that's not and that's not because the Polish or the Czechs are less traditionally hostile to Israel than the English. Or the French. Now, this is all nonsense. Let's be clear. It mm-hmm. is because of the very large, I'm afraid, Islamic populations in those countries, and unfortunately, because among those Islamic populations, not necessarily a majority, but a considerable percentage, there is sympathy for the kind of ideas represented by. Hamas, and there is sympathy for aggressive action against Israel. And that's what we're witnessing. So, yes, mm-hmm. it's a double standard, but it's also even something deeper and more, more perturbing than that. So, I mean, one of the things that I'm feeling, and I'm sure you are also, is that Israelis are willing to do this. And there is an unbelievable sense in this country. So many people have been called up, including my children and son-in-law. And 
but we want it finished. We don't want to go yeah. and do what we've done every few years and, you know, hurt Hamas, and then they come back a few years later. We want this done. Right. I'm sure you're sensing that also. But if you were giving advice to the Israeli government, and I really wish that you were, what would you yeah. tell them to do about Gaza? Because this seems to be the conundrum they constantly face. So we get rid of Hamas. We're going to take over Gaza. We want to rule Gaza again. Do we force Egypt in some way to take these people in? I've read a couple of serious articles about perhaps Qatar and all the backers of these. Palaces. Let them take them in. All right. Yeah. If Israel can't have them here. What What would you do? What What would your idea be here? Yeah, I mean, my, I, I am among those who thinks that the Hamas authority has to be destroyed. And at the same time, I'm I genuinely am also among those who says there's no easy solution to saying what would come next, mm-hmm. um, because you know it is it is those who talk about bringing the Palestinian Authority in there yeah. uh, are not being serious because the Palestinian Authority, in any case, would refuse. You know, the last thing it would want to do uh, would be to come in there on the. Uh, you know, following an Israeli military campaign against uh, other Palestinians. And, and so, they're crumbling you know, in Judea and Samaria. They're fighting. They are also, yeah. So, so the PA is a very, the, the PA is a very hard, uh, is not a practical uh, uh, option. And the Egyptians also will just do everything. You know, it's very nice to want the Egyptians to come in. Mm-hmm. But then uh, there's, you know, the Egyptians get a vote as well, I think, when it comes to They don't to want that. them either. They're yes. not remotely interested in uh, in getting involved in that. So there is a real difficulty which needs thinking through. I'm, I'm in support of the destruction of the Hamas Authority, of course, but there isn't any easy answers to this. You know, could it come through our, so our new friends in the United Arab Emirates and people like Dahlan who work for them, who of course himself is from Gaza? You know, mm-hmm. there's somebody who, 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 you know, there's some an avenue perhaps to explore. But again, th- there isn't really any easy answers there. But I do also think that sometimes when you take military action, you don't always know what will follow, but you do know that here's an enemy that has to be destroyed. I mean, people didn't know exactly also what would follow when, you know, when when Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan was destroyed. It wasn't there was a like there was a fully worked out political dispensation ahead. There was a need for something to be done, and it was done. And I have no doubt that the Hamas authority in Gaza needs to cease to exist. And after that, we and the world and the West and whoever else can start to think about what comes next. But it's clear that has to take place. Having said that, I don't think it's quite clear that that's the way in which Israel's uh, allies look at it. And I'm not even sure if the Israeli government itself is clear, because I listened to Hanegbi, the national security advisor, a couple of nights ago. And and he made the clearest statement yet in Hebrew that that was the goal of the operation. One journalist asked him, you know, expecting him to kind of be mealy-mouthed, I think, and he wasn't. He said, no, no, no. The goal is to, to destroy the Hamas authority and Gaza is going to cease to exist. But since then, I've heard other colleagues saying they've spoken to senior officials who are saying something quite different. Well, no, we want to make sure they can never have the ability or even desire to hurt us again. Well, what does that mean? That no. means something very different to destroying the authority. Yeah, it probably just means nothing much at all. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure if there is clear thinking on this in the top Israeli echelon. And I'm even less sure, by the way, if there is clear thinking on this among Israel's allies. Most importantly, of course, the U.S. Uh, or maybe you know exclusively, really, the U.S. administration. How you know, do you interpret the, the aircraft carriers being sent here? Well, look, I mean, this is, you know, this is a clear statement of intention on the part of the administration to the Iranians to stay out. And from this point of view, I think it's very serious. I don't think the Biden administration could afford to send an aircraft carrier, and there's another one joining along soon, uh, with it, w- if the intentions were not serious, because the implications of sending two aircraft carriers and then, let's say, Iran and Hezbollah do enter the fray and then America doesn't do anything would right. be enormously grave. So you don't do it if you're not serious about it. They genuinely want to help Israel and they genuinely want to keep the Iranian to do so by keeping 
the Iranians out and intimidating the Iranians. But that doesn't mean to say, and I think Biden's already begun to hint at this in the last 24 hours, that doesn't mean to say that they're in support of the uh, destruction of the Hamas authority or, or rooting it out to the degree that maybe would be necessary. Biden's always already said, you know, you, you don't want to reoccupy Gaza, so on and so forth. So my sense is that, you know, the administration uh, is doing good stuff in terms of its willingness to step up. I mean, that's, that is fantastic. And that's, that's what allies you would hope would do. But I don't think we should forget this administration's particular agenda with regard to Iran and with regard to the region, which has been in many ways very uh, appeasing. I think what they want to do in a certain way is a kind of bear hug to Israel, where they say, yeah, we are here to help, we are going to help, we mean this, mm -hmm. but we also require you to kind of fit in with our broader regional agenda. We don't want you going too far in Gaza. We're not going to in any way admit that the Iranians were involved here, even though they obviously were in the way that I described at the beginning, which is simply not deniable, you know, that they this is their production in terms of money and weaponry and know-how. Uh, so all that's going to be kind of kept, uh, you know, away from the uh, the discussion. So there's a kind of a little bit of a bear hug going on here. There is goodwill. It's all for real. But we shouldn't be naive in sort of thinking about the broader uh, agenda. Yeah. It just seems like we just keep spending years kicking the can down the road. Like, let's say Iran doesn't get involved now. It's still out there. It's still going nuclear. Yeah. Hezbollah is still has, I don't know, 150,000 missiles aimed at Israel. So we're just mm -hmm. leaving that for another day. Yeah, well, that's there were those there, of course, as you know, have been those uh, here in Israel who've been saying, well, we should use this advantage yeah. also to this moment also to take action against Hezbollah. And I think that's, uh, you know, there's, there's a great deal of uh, sense in that. So, you know, because actually what we're doing, as far as I can see, and I think what happened on October 7th is an example of that or kind of, you know, makes that very obvious, is that as we uh, allow time, the other side uh, is getting stronger. Uh, is slowly building up its strength. I mean, mm -hmm. here we are now in a situation where Israel is now, you know, Hezbollah controls Lebanon. Right. Very, very powerful, as we now know, Iran-supported Islamist militia controls Gaza. Also in West Bank, Judea and Samaria, there are militias in Shechem and in uh, Jenin, powered by, financed by, armed by the same people. And those of, like myself who work closely on Syria know that all that weaponry, including the IEDs and the rest of it that's turned up in Jenin and Shechem, has to enter Judea and Samaria somehow. And how does it do? So it comes from Syria through Jordan into the West Bank and then to Jenin and to Shechem, which means that, you know, there's already a kind of semi-circle of Iranian power uh, surrounding Israel. So the question is whether at any stage a decision is taken to say, well, no, this has to be broken, or whether we're just going to do little things, and it just keeps on gradually building itself up. It's very clear that the Iranians and their friends have a long-term goal for the erosion and eventual destruction of Israel. We should be clear on that. And we should also start being very, very clear and not complacent about the means we have to use to counter it. So give us a couple minutes on Syria, because it's been very quiet. Mm. You know, Syria was all over the headlines a decade ago, even less. And that's when yeah. I talked to you about all that. But and now it seems that you don't really hear about Syria. You don't really hear about Assad. Every, every few days you hear that Israel bombed something, you know, some airport somewhere, took out some convoy. And I'm sure we're just hearing a little bit of what's actually going on. So what is going on in Syria? Well, in Syria, and the Syrian war, so the civil war is effectively over. Uh, Syria remains divided into three de facto authorities, the, one of which, of course, is Assad regime uh, itself, which controls Damascus and Aleppo and also the entirety of the coastal uh, area. But it still only consists of around 60, 65 percent of the territory of Syria. And then there is the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces or uh, Autonomous Authority of Northeast Syria, which is the U.S. Uh, associated Kurdish dominated authority 
which controls around 25%, 25 to 30% of the territory of Syria, east of the Euphrates River. And then there's another authority of around 10% uh, in the northwest, effectively controlled by the Turks in alliance with a number of Sunni uh, Islamist and jihadi militias. So Syria remains divided into three. There's no prospect for its reunification uh, anytime soon. Uh, the Americans and Europeans have stayed pretty firm with regard to not agreeing to money for reconstruction for Assad, for as long as there's no political process. Of course, there won't be any political right. process from his point of view. So uh, it, the country under regime control remains impoverished. Very little reconstruction has taken place. And that's pretty much the situation from an Israeli point of view, though. What matters uh, is that the uh, Iranian uh, element in the country is is growing in strength. And I've always uh, I've said to colleagues now for uh, a long period of time, we shouldn't be thinking anymore of the notion that Assad is the host and he can, you know, welcome guests or tell them to go home the way that you expect hosts to be able to do. On the contrary, the Iranian strength in the country now is far beyond anything which he could just sort of, you know, issue an edict and send it out of the borders of the country. And the Iranian strength is deeply burrowed into the official institutions of the Syrian state itself. And if we think of powerful, famous, uh, for those of us who look at Syria, these famous institutions like the Air Force Intelligence and the 4th uh, Armored Division, you know, these uh, institutions today work in close cooperation with the Iranians and with Hezbollah. So there's a powerful, uh, independent Iranian strength on the ground in Syria. And certainly in uh, in uh, regional media, there's been reports over the last 48 hours of the movement of Iran-associated militias from Deir Azor in eastern Syria westwards in the direction of the Golan. That is to say, in the event that Hezbollah and Iran were to choose to enter this war, which I don't say they necessarily will, I think it's very possible they will think wisely on it because of the presence of two American aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean. But in the event that they did, we shouldn't be thinking only of a closed uh, front of Israel plus Lebanon. We should be bringing Syria into the picture as well, and even further afield, because the Iran-associated uh, regional alliance you know, stretches far beyond just their own little neighborhood here into Syria and then eastern into Iraq and then to Iran itself, of course. Is Iraq also pretty much taken over by Iran right now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Iraq, uh, there, were, there were elections, if you remember, in 2021 right. in uh, Iraq, and then there was a great deal of... Uh, uh, optimism because there was a hope at least that anti-Iranian or at least anti-Iranian plus uh, indifferent sort of, sort of neutral or not not associated with Iranian uh, Shia forces might form the government but in the end they did not manage to do so and the people who formed the government is essentially the pro-Iran element, what's called the coordination framework, the association of uh, Shia uh, political parties and militias that are associated with Iran are today effectively the government of what are today the government of Iraq. They are the people in the ministries. They're the national security advisor, for example, in uh, Iraq is today a member of the Badr organization, which is a, an Iran-supported Shia militia. So the Iranians uh, run the show in Iraq today, absolutely. And how about uh, Jordan, the, which is still our longest border with Jordan? No, in Jordan, I mean, in Jordan, of course, you know, we, the, the government is, is well known, and the government, I mean, the, the monarchy is not uh, aligned with the Iranians. But the issue is if the monarchy is really able or uh, willing or attempting anymore to properly uh, police the border, which was right. the case for a very long time for that long border. Or at least we were told, you know, the monarchy, whatever you may say about the kind of statements mm -hmm. the king makes and so on. Actually, when it comes to security cooperation, it's very good. Well, you know, be that as it may, 
we know about at least one incident uh, in Stotyakov a couple of months ago when some very powerful material came through, i.e. very modern uh, EFP or IEDs on their way into uh, the West Bank. As I said, that came in from Syria and it went in through Jordan and it was Israel which, uh, which then you know, knew about it and stopped mm -hmm. it. But that shows that stuff is getting in. The Jordanian border is no longer uh, impermeable. Jordanian-Israel border, I mean, stuff is coming in, coming through that border, and it's coming in from Syria, uh, and the Jordanians are not managing to effectively uh, deal with that process. Wow. At least, they're not managing at least to hermetic. I'm sure they may well be having some achievements. They're not managing to hermetically seal it, that's for sure. So cold. So what about the big bear in the room, Russia? Yeah, well, you've probably read that there is, uh, there is uh, speculation regarding a Russian role in all this. I mean, I've read some including some analysts that I respect sort of saying, well, the Russians may well be involved in this because it diverts attention from their war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, yeah, you know, who knows? We can all speculate, I guess, as much as we want. I mean, if somebody, you know, if somebody comes up with some actual indications and some actual proof or something of that, then, you know, I'm certainly willing, I think many others would be to, to listen and to take that seriously. As of now, though, we don't uh, have any proof in that regard. Um, but certainly, you know, as a result of the Ukraine war, uh, the Russian-Iranian uh, relationship has uh, has increased and has has deepened, you know, very very significantly. So uh, that's a change for the worst, which has taken place, I would say, over in recent uh, in the last uh, well, where are we now? In the last year and a half, uh, mm -hmm. as a result of the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what I would say. But in terms of direct involvement with this, I, I, you know, people can write and people can speculate, but nobody, at least until now, has managed to come up with any proof. Again, you know, whereas by contrast to the relationship with Iran which is traceable and public, you know, between Hamas and Iran, I mean. Are, are you and your very esteemed colleagues being listened to by people at the top? Because they're speaking as just a little Israeli, there is such a tremendous sense of despair in Israel now about a lot how this happened. And I don't want to get into all that because the day of reckoning right. will come, both in the yeah. army and in the intelligence services and in the government itself. And I think many of us are looking forward to the day after the war when 120 yes. letters of resignation show up from the Knesset. But yeah. all of you who are serious experts who don't have this conception or misconception that they all have who are seeing this as a region, are you being listened to, please, at any level? I mean, yeah, the, we do uh, interact with government and with, with the relevant government bodies, whether it's National Security Council or others. Mm -hmm. You know, we meet and we pass on, you know, work that we've we've done and it's received and, and it's received and, and supposedly listened to. But I, my sense is that the events of October 7th did show, you know, a very deep rot at nice. the heart of Israeli uh, government, but bodies of government. I mean, there's no other way uh, of putting it. I think yeah. it's a rot yeah. which is conceptual. And it may well have spilled over even into practical areas in terms of you know what we saw about the slowness of the of the machinery of government to respond over the first day or two. You know, I was down in the in the in the border area on on Sunday, you know, the day after, and right. uh, you know, it would the, the the state of Israel still kind of wasn't there yet. There was there was still you know this sense of of a void, and you know, the border was not properly sealed. I mean, with Gaza, it was not properly sealed until about forty eight hours, even a little bit more. After the events themselves, there was a sense that yeah, of, of, of rot, and I, you know, I, I'm afraid I can't be, you know, a person who can sit there and say, but actually, no, it's okay because behind the scenes everything's functioning. I don't work for the government. Uh, you know, we, we speak to we speak to government, and they do listen. Uh, sure, they they take our work seriously. They're aware of our work, mm -hmm. but you know, it, it hasn't had the effect, at least of uh, you know, which one would have liked it to have done of of galvanizing in our 
feel that it's you know, of galvanizing thinking, of giving a sense of urgency, of ridding the complacency over specifically Gaza while there was still time. You know, it didn't it, uh, demonstrably it did not have that effect, even though, as I said, colleagues of mine in recent months were working on the issue of Gaza and saying there's a need to disarm Gaza. Gaza should not be allowed to carry on turning itself into this fortress because of the conception that we have it deterred, that they now care about money and money from Qatar and work permits. You know, that was a mistaken concept. Now we've all seen that and paid the price for it. Yeah, I also I'm a, I'm a citizen as much as anybody else from the rank and file, you know, and I like every, like all our fellow citizens, I think or at least hope most of them, are expecting a very major reckoning with the political and military establishments once this thing is over. Yeah, because this was not supposed to happen in the strong state of Israel. I mean, this is out of the Holocaust. It really is. Yeah, many right. people killed in one day, and the way they were yeah. killed, it's a pogrom in the state of Israel. And I think it has shaken yes. a lot of us up, in, and, and Jews in the, you know, in the diaspora as well, in some mm -hmm. very, very strong ways. But I have to say, just to end this on a positive note, because I know that you have to go, that the people here, the lower level, mm -hmm. is something mm -hmm. that oh, yeah. you can't even put into words. The no, altruism, the... Absolutely. It's, Absolutely. I mean, the noise behind me now is my husband making salad for soldiers. We're going to go out now after this interview mm -hmm. and deliver food. And it's just, it's oh, everywhere. Yeah. It, it, no, it's absolutely. Yeah, you know, I was in, yeah, on that very Sunday, we went to Barzillai Medical Center, you know, myself and a colleague. And, and even just in that first day, there were already volunteers outside giving out free food to medical staff. The medical staff themselves were doing an amazing job. So, no, absolutely. In terms of the, the nation itself, so to speak, I mean, the people, you know, there are some, you know, there, there are many, many fantastic people here who are hugely committed to the mission and committed yes. to the project and doing amazing things on a daily basis. Absolutely right. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that is, that's what's going to get us through. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, we know that we can change our leadership, but we can't change the people. And yeah. the people are really something else. Yeah. The people are really something else. And that's yeah. what, that's what I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. With everything I know you and I wouldn't be and couldn't be anywhere else. Jonathan Spire, thank you so much Absolutely. for everything that you do. And I just hope that the, your words and all and all this that you've done over all the years, you know, is listened to at some point and, in a much more serious way. And I know I, 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 I echo that, that hope. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that much. you have spent your entire adult life doing what you can to protect the state of Israel. And I thank you. I really do. Thanks okay, very everybody. Much. Very nice all right. Okay, so you take care of yourself and go on and, and influence lots of people. All right, everybody, that's it for tonight. Um, thanks to Ben and to Tabitha. Uh, just a little personal note, as I was coming home to do this podcast, I was in Jerusalem. So I heard that there was a siren and uh, and it was in Jerusalem, but I didn't hear it. I cracked open my window. I was already driving on the tunnel road that leads out of Jerusalem. And then when I was on the bridge over Bethlehem in between the two tunnels, there were two tremendous booms above my head. Uh, so I got into the tunnel and, uh, and everything was fine. But it's, you know, the they're still shooting. They're still shooting and they're shooting far. And so everybody is taking care and watching out for our children. And God willing, everybody will come home safely. And, uh, and we will come out of this much stronger and much, much wiser. Oh, okay, so everyone take care of wherever you are. Eve Harrow Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Once again, with thanks to Jonathan Spire and to everybody who's working so hard to keep this country safe. Take care, everybody, and goodbye for now.